Listener Production. A Life of Greatness Summer Series is back, and this is my chat with the captivating Jay Shetty. It's a really interesting conversation because obviously Jay practiced as a monk for a period of time, and then he became basically a superstar in the personal development space. It is a fascinating insight into his astonishing life journey. Our brand new season of A Life of Greatness, in case you're wondering, will be back on Feb 6 with new episodes. But in the meantime, please enjoy this unforgettable conversation with Jay Shetty. Jay Shetty is a best-selling author, monk and purpose coach. His teachings embody old wisdom with modern practicality. Jay says, when you learn a little, you feel like you know a lot. But when you learn a lot, you realise you know very little. In this intimate conversation, Jay and I talk about his time as a monk, the importance of humility, and why practising non-judgment is so important. We judge people when we miss stuff and we, we miss out on true beauty and true experience. And, and so for me, I think that's a constant thing for all of us. It's not slowing down in terms of speed or pace. It's trying to operate from a place of love and compassion. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Jay Shetty is the author of the best-selling book, Think Like a Monk, and his wisdom-filled videos have garnered over 4 billion views and gained over 20 million followers globally. In this episode, you will learn simple tips on how to control the mind and build a life beyond your wildest dreams. So, Jay, for someone who just turned 33 the other day, you've had a fruitful life. But take us through where it all began, growing up in the UK... As a young boy, how were the younger years for you? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And my younger years, up until probably about the age of 14, I was bullied a lot. I was overweight. They were interesting years because despite the treatment I received at school, I still felt extremely confident in myself and who I was. And I think partly a lot of that's to do with the love that I received from my mom. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also because of the fact that I started to learn to navigate life pretty, pretty early on. And so that was me up until about the age of 14. And then at the age of 14, I think I started to rebel a little and try to get involved maybe in the wrong activities and the wrong circles and just that usual teenage rebellion of wanting to try everything and disobey my parents and experiment with everything. And then when I was 18, when I had started to become very interested in the real life stories of humans and the challenges and beliefs that people had got into. And so the two first books I remember reading were both autobiographies. One was David Beckham and the other one was Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I was just intrigued by two people that Mm. I was blown away by their level of discipline, their ability to control their mind. And then when I was 18, I met a monk, which is where the beginning of this next journey of my life began. And so how did you meet a monk? How did that come about? 
Yeah, so I would always go to hear CEOs, celebrities, athletes speak, whether it was at universities or events in London or mm. book signings. I've always been someone who's wanted to learn from incredibly talented people and incredible minds. And my friends once told me that a monk was going to speak. And I just thought to myself, I was like, what are we going to learn from a monk? And I, and I had this cynicism and this uh, somewhat arrogance of just like, well, what am I going to learn from a monk? Like, what's a monk achieved? You know, what story are they going to tell me that's going to impress me? And I told my friends that I would only go if we went to a bar afterwards. And so that's just, I'm just sharing that to state the, the mindset and the consciousness that I was in at the time. And so my friends were very good. They told me we would do just that. And we went along to hear this monk speak. Now, I went there expecting nothing. And this is how humbling and truly anchoring these amazing moments in our life are that I found so much of what became the next decade of my life and where I am today. And the reason why it resonated so much is this monk that I was hearing from, he'd given up jobs and his incredible degree that he'd got from IIT, which is like the MIT of India. Mm. He'd given that up to be a monk. And I thought you either have to be the craziest person in the world or you have to be the smartest person in the world to make that choice. And he seemed pretty smart. And then now when I look back in hindsight and I write about this in Think Like a Monk, the book, that, you know, when I was 18, I'd met people who were rich, I'd met people who were famous, I'd met people who were beautiful and attractive, I'd met people who were knowledgeable and intellectual, but I don't think I'd met anyone who was truly happy. And, and the monk exuded joy. And I don't just mean energetically, I mean, just he just seemed really happy. And he was talking about how we only experience true happiness when we use what we have in the service of others. Mm. And that, that day just like penetrated through my heart and just connected so deeply that I just felt drawn to want to learn more from him. When you had met those other people, the rich people, the famous people, the really attractive people, what was it when you met them that you seemed to tap into to know that they weren't happy? I don't think it was even something that I noticed that they weren't happy. I just felt that there was a different level of aura and energy from the monk when I met him. Mm. And I think for me, it was more so that the people that were older than me that I was friends with in London, who had the car, had the home, uh, had the partner, they would often open up to me. And I really owe it to some of my older friends who would open up to me and just share their dissatisfaction on life or share their challenges in life. And I think that gave me a great sense of urgency to want to find an alternative path and another path, because I could see these people that were about 5, 10, uh, 15 years ahead of where I was. And I could see that they hadn't figured it out, even though it looked like they'd figured it mm. out. And so they checked everything off the checklist, but they still weren't happy. And I was like, well, I'm chasing the same checklist. So, you know, we all think we're the exception, mm. but that's usually a mindset that gets us into trouble rather than a mindset of just looking at patterns, understanding people's journeys, uh, you know, being aware of what's happening around us. Yes. And take us through, obviously, you then went on to become a monk yourself and you lived in an ashram for a, a period of time. What made you want to take that next step to go and do that and leave this completely different world that you had been living in behind? So after meeting the monk at 18, every time I had a summer or a Christmas break from university, I would try and spend as much of it as I could 
in India, living with him, training and learning under the monks. And so I was interning at a corporation because I was hoping that I would get into a corporate job. And so I'd intern half of my summer holidays as a, in a, in a finance company. And then the other half of it, I'd spend training as a monk in India. And so I would literally go from steakhouses, bars, and wearing suits to sleeping on the floor, cold showers, and meditating. And after doing that in many of my breaks, when I graduated from my university, I looked at the two paths that I had. I could either take these corporate job offers that I had, or I could live the life of a monk. And everything about my being was just confident that the monk path would be right for two main reasons. One, that it would help me deeply learn about myself, my mind, and truly what life was about. And the second was that I felt that I'd be able to be of service to humanity as a monk because the monks that I lived with were doing philanthropy work, were doing charity work, they were supporting communities. And I thought, wow, that would be such a beautiful thing to do with my life. And so for me, what made it clear was this almost split test or A-B test or this experiment and, and I think that there's so much in this that I'd love to unpack for your listeners, because you may think, Jay, I'm never going to go and become a monk. That's not my plan. But I promise you there's something in your life that you want to do that's breaking the mold and you're stopping yourself from doing it. Mm. You may be 30 and you want to live your passion because you've been doing a job you hate for nine years. You may be someone who wants to start a family. You may be someone who wants to move country. We all get to a point in our life where we want to think like a monk. And what I mean by that is break the mold of our journey. And we don't have the strength and courage to do it because we think, well, I've been doing this for like 10, 15 years now. It's getting unsafe to quit now. And what's everyone going to say now? And for me, what really breaks through that is this experiment. I'd experimented both lives and I would check in with myself after I'd finished my internships and after I'd finished my time at the ashram in those summer breaks or Christmas breaks. And I always felt fulfilled when I came back from the ashram. And that made me really confident that that was the path I wanted to take. You know, it's a funny thing. I have never lived in an ashram or with monks before, but I have done long, intensive meditation retreats where, you know, you're meditating for up to like five hours straight and then another, you know, four hours and that sort of thing. And they'll go for a week or 10 days or so and you come back It's an unexplained feeling of just absolute happiness and joy and a feeling where you feel almost so content with yourself that you have absolutely no worries about anything that's going on in the world that you may have walked in with. What was the greatest thing that you learned from being in the monastery? I love that experience. I'm so glad that Um, I'm hearing that from you because I think, you know, in the book, I talk about immersive experiences so much and about how that's what really convinces us that something works. It's Mm. almost like if you dabble in something for five minutes a day, you'll never really figure out whether it works. And in the book, I give the example of, you know, let's say you meet someone and you're curious about dating them and you saw them every day for five minutes how long would it take you to figure out that you were in love or that you wanted to spend the rest of your life with this person? It would take forever. Mm. But if you spent a weekend or a week or a month with someone and saw someone every day and really learned about each other, you're, you're more likely to make a better decision. And, and when I'm, whenever I'm asked that, what's the biggest lesson I learned? It's a really tough question to answer, but, but I'll say this, that my three years living as a monk 
in which I lived and traveled across India and Europe, during that time, that was like being at school. And the seven years since I've left, they felt like the exam or the test. And I can say that every piece of monk wisdom that I've experimented with in the real world has worked. It is shown to be true. And I think that's the biggest lesson I learned is that timeless wisdom and the wisdom that exists in these practices, these tools, these texts, that they actually apply to modern life. And that's why I made such a diligent effort to do the research into the science behind a lot of monks' brains and scans and meditation, because it's so evident to me. And the biggest thing I learned is that it works. Yeah. Uh, if I'm talking about something specifically that I learned, I would say it's the ability for adaptability and resilience. So as a monk, you are meditating for countless hours a day. You sleep on the floor. You don't have a space that's yours. It can change every night. You travel not in the best of circumstances and you have to find your meditation. I, I share a story about how we were on like a really long train journey. I remember it being like anything like 48 to 72 hour train journey for, uh, from where we were in Mumbai to the south of India. And we're on like one of the lowest class of trains. So we're not traveling comfortably. And I remember saying to one of my teachers that, oh, whenever it gets calm and we stop in the in between stops, I'll jump off, I'll meditate and then I'll come back on. And he said, well, why don't you meditate on the train? And I said, oh, it's too chaotic. I can't, I can't focus. And he said, well, do you think life is chaotic or calm? And I said, chaotic. He said, well, if you can't meditate on a chaotic train, you won't be able to meditate during a chaotic life. And I think that wow. was the skill that we were absorbing living as monks was that you were trained to develop calm in a sense of chaos and in a sense of craziness. Isn't that fascinating? And you obviously have written your book, Think Like a Monk, and we'll go into all the different bits and pieces that encompasses that. I wanted to talk to you, though. What did you learn about the breath? in your time in the ashram? Yeah, so if you don't mind, I can share the story uh, that I share in the book. And so I remember the pretty much my first day of monk school and I've like, you know, shaved my hair, I'm wearing robes for the first time. And I'm still, I still look like I'm from London and, and don't fit in and I'm trying to figure my way around. And I see a very young monk, probably like 10, 11 years old. And he's teaching a group of younger monks uh, who are probably like, you know, very young, very young. Uh, and he's teaching them something. So I'm observing and I'm watching them. And then he comes out of the class and, and I'm just, first of all, I'm just perplexed that a 10 or 11 year old's teaching anything. And, and then after that, I'm just like, well, what was going on there? And he was like, oh yeah, that was their, that was their first class. And I was like, their first class of what? And he was like, well, that's their first class of school. And I was like, oh, cool. What did you teach them? And he was like, well, what did you learn at your first class of school? And I was like, I think I learned how to count or the ABCs. And he said, well, yeah, well, for them, do you want to know what I taught them? And I was like, yeah, sure. And he was like, well, I was teaching them how to breathe. And I was like, what do you mean teaching them how to breathe? Like, everyone knows how to breathe. You just breathe, right? And he, and he said, no. He said, you know, he said, from the moment we're born to the moment we're dead, the only thing that stays with us is our breath. He said that we change uh, countries, we change jobs, we change careers, we change passions, but he goes, our breath is always with us. Mm. And he said that our breath is the root of every emotion we experience. When we're happy, what changes? Our breath. When we're sad, what changes our breath? 
when we're struggling or, or disappointed or we're nervous or anxious, what changes our breath? And he said that if we learn to navigate our breath, then we'll learn to navigate life. And I was just blown away. And now when I look back, I've even thought about that. And I think, you know, we always say things like, I'm trying to catch my breath or let me just take a breath. Or even in positive things, we say he or she takes my breath away mm. or that view is breathtaking. So every emotion in our life is centered around breath and breath makes the mind and the emotions tangible because we can feel our breath. And so what I learned was that every experience I had, whether it's anxiety, nerves, uh, sadness, disappointment, I could feel it in my breath. And that if I could change the way I breathe, I could change the way I experience something. Now that's not about getting away from the feeling. It's about being able to process and heal the feeling properly. What kind of breath work do you do? Yeah, so we were introduced to many different forms of breath work. Uh, a lot of it was from the tradition of pranayama, mm. uh, which I'm sure you may have practiced as well yes. in, in some of your immersive experiences. Uh, everything from uh, breath work like Kapalabhati breath uh, through to Anulom Velom. If you're aware of these terms and you know the different types of breath, you may see people playing around with their thumbs mm. and their fingers and their nose. Uh, but, but the simpler forms of breath work that I learned that have been really powerful for me, uh, and a lot of these are spoken about today and used in psychology and therapy, but we were introduced to them as monks. And so whether you're breathing in for a count of four and breathing out for more than four, that's been one that I probably use the most. And so if I'm feeling nervous when I'm coming on an interview or about to go on stage, or if I'm doing something that I'm feeling anxious about, or if I can't get to sleep at night, then I'll breathe in for a count of four and I'll count in my mind one, two, three, four, and I'll breathe out for more than four. And every time I do it, it works amazingly because every time I'm about to go on stage or in front of thousands of people, naturally my heart starts to beat really fast start to sweat a little bit, you get a bit nervous. And every time I do that breath work, it just makes me feel aligned again. And that's how we were introduced to breath work is that most of us experience one of two things. When we wake up in the morning, either our mind is ahead of our body. Have you ever had that where your mind is just racing yes. around and your body's like, oh, I just want to be in bed. Or you experience the opposite. You wake up and your body's running around and needs to do a lot. And your mind goes, oh, let me still be in bed. And so our mind and our body are always out of sync. So when we breathe in for the same amount of time as we breathe out, we realign our mind and body. And so anytime you feel like your mind or your body are out of sync or they're causing some friction, breathe in for the same amount of time as you breathe out mm. and you start to see some alignment. It's unbelievable how powerful the breath is. And it's something that, you know, I love that story that you told in Think Like a Monk. When I heard it, I was like, wow, that is so unbelievably powerful. When I started practicing breath work and I do a lot of the kundalini breathing, which is quite full on, and it's the shifting of energy. So kind of to move that stagnant energy up into the brain. I just realized that how how unbelievably transformational it is. Yeah. So it's definitely something that I highly recommend Let's talk about the mind because that is something that we all have and it's a huge part of, uh, of your book, Think Like a Monk, and something that you learned a lot about when you were studying as a monk. Let's talk about mindfulness because that's obviously the biggest buzzword and it has been for a very long time. But before that, I just want to read a passage out of your book that I thought was yeah. so unbelievably pertinent and a very sweet story. A senior monk once told me an old story about these dilemmas which all of us agonise over. 
An elder tells his grandson every choice in life is a battle between two wolves inside of us. One represents anger, envy, greed, fear, lies, insecurity and ego. The other represents peace, love, compassion, kindness, humility and positivity. They are competing for supremacy. Which wolf wins, the grandson asked. The one you feed, the elder replies. I just love that story. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you learned about the mind? Yeah, absolutely. One of my favourite refreshing insights about the mind that I learned through the Bhagavad Gita and the other texts that I studied as a monk is that they talk about the interaction between three things. So it's the senses, the mind, and then the intelligence, which Mm. acts in the middle. So our senses are wired to appreciate, admire, and be attracted to certain things. So if you were someone like me, who was fed four chocolate products a day growing up, I have a great affinity towards chocolate and I'm plant-based, I have a plant-based lifestyle. So I'm talking about, um, you know, dairy-free chocolate. And so I get really into chocolate, but the point I'm making is that our senses get attracted to something and then our senses go and ask the mind, what do you reckon? Do you think that's all right? And the mind looks at its previous experiences and goes, yeah, last time we had chocolate, it was great because the mind is tapping into that immediate instant gratification. And so the mind goes back to the senses, goes, go for it, go and go and get, eat that chocolate or whatever it may be for you. And that sometimes can become addictive. It can become obsessive. It can read us, mm. lead us the wrong way. We all know what our own vices are. And so whether that's a food you're trying to give up or whether it's alcohol you're trying to give up or whatever it may be that you're trying to give up, or you're trying to get up early and you wake up in the morning and your senses go, ah, let's go back to sleep. Check in with the mind. The mind goes, yeah, might as well go back to sleep. And then you go to sleep. And so we're used to hearing or feeding the voice of the mind. We're used to feeding that laziness, the complacency, the lethargy. We're used to also feeding the negativity when we hear gossip, sometimes our ears like mm. perk up and want to know more. When we hear something negative about someone, it's almost more interesting than if you heard something positive about that person. And, and you just almost like you're, you're listening even more attentively. And we see this in our conversations all the time. So all of those activities and habits are feeding the bad dog or the bad wolf in that analogy that I was told. Now, the intelligence is almost like the gatekeeper or the guard that stops the senses and the mind from easily communicating and just running riot and taking you where they want. So the intelligence is only as strong as you've created discipline and courage in your life to follow the higher values and the higher qualities. So let's say you've done a lot. Let's say, let's say the task was actually, let's try something with you, Sarah. What's a habit that you've been working on or something that you've been trying to make in your life and you may have achieved it already, but what was something you once struggled with? I, I'm trying to become more mindful and not doing 5,000 things at one time. I find that even when, you know, in a work day, I'll be writing an email and then I'll hear another email. And before I finish one email, I've gone to the other email and then I hear a text and suddenly I've gone to my phone and it's like, oh my God, this is really, I'm not, I'm not practicing mindfulness very well. Yeah, great. So so that's the, basically the switch between multitasking to what's now known as single tasking, yes. being able to really be present and attentive with what we're doing at the time. So let, let's say that's a great example. Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate you. I appreciate you being so open and helping us uh, with something really practical. So now the senses 
just as you just described, are triggered. Oh, there's an email, or oh, there's a notification, or oh, someone's trying to call me. Oh, I forgot what about ordering dinner, what are we having for lunch? Oh, and then you're just trying to do everything. So the senses are just all over mm. the place. Now the mind allows the senses to do that because you've done that for such a long period of time and the mind's just kind of letting you do your thing. Now the intelligence will only be able to stop that happening if we've fed the intelligence with enough research, with enough information, with enough practice that it knows what to say to the mind when this appears. So for now, for example, when we read about mindfulness, when we hear about mindfulness, when we practice mindfulness, when we're around people who are more mindful, your mindful, intelligent guard gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so next time your senses get distracted, it comes to the intelligence before it goes to the mind. And the intelligence goes, wait a minute, actually, I think we should just focus on this task because guess what? Only 2% of the world's population can multitask. When everyone hears that, they think they're in that 2%, psychologists say, but most of us are in the 98%. And so let me remember that actually I achieve less and I drain more energy when I try and multitask and I'll be better when I don't. So having that dialogue, that conversation in your head is the dialogue between the intelligence and the mind. And that's strengthened when we do these practices. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes absolute sense. Something you talk about in your book is using silence to read between the lines. And obviously speaking about what we are now, I find that the quieter my mind, the more that I can hear. And I find that it gives me a pathway, especially during meditation, to the quantum field where when I'm going about my day-to-day activities, I feel that I don't have that connection because there is so much noise in my life. What have been some of the most profound experiences you have when you've been in that meditative state? That's a beautiful question. Uh, I think one of the most beautiful experiences I I once had was when we were meditating in like the heat. Uh, And and if you've ever tried meditating in extreme cold or extreme heat, it's really challenging. Yeah. And, and so, you know, not something I do too much of anymore, but, but definitely at that time when I was experimenting with it, but it was really, really hot that day. I, I can't remember how it was so hot that I was sweating from head to toe and I was only wearing robes and robes are not warm at all. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really hot. And the, the purpose of that was to try and almost feel like you could go beyond the body. Mm. So, so the goal of that is if the body's in that much, uh, I wouldn't say pain, I would say if the body's in that much discomfort, then you are forced to go more inward because you don't want to experience that physical discomfort. So I have not experienced this too many times, but there were definitely glimpses where I, where I for, for moments, literally felt no discomfort because I had been allowed to go inward uh, into my consciousness and, and beyond the mind because the mind is always processing physical pain. Now, I've only ever had glimpses and, and brief moments of experiencing that, but really not feeling that I'm even connected to my mm. physical body. But the studies that I share in the book about monks who've meditated for, for decades show that when they put their finger on a heating plate, it registered physical pain, but no mental pain because they're disconnected 
the mental pain from the physical pain. Whereas normal people felt pain twice. People who didn't meditate, when they touched a plate that was heating up gradually, they felt pain both in the physical and the mental. And so I've definitely had glimpses of just feeling beyond my body and not feeling in the limitations of the body. And I think that's such a profound experience uh, because, you know, we're not our bodies. No. Uh, and, 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 and so most of us have never experienced being beyond our bodies and therefore we identify most closely with our physical bodies, but we're so much more. And, and those meditations, when you go inward, are set to introduce you to what's known as the antarakash or the inner sky. Uh, and those have been some of my most powerful meditations of really not feeling like I'm this body. Now you're obviously in LA and you're not in the ashram anymore. What kind of meditations do you do now and how often do you do them? Yeah, so meditation has been a big part of my life for the last 15 years since I met the monk when I was 18. I'm 33 now. It was my birthday last Sunday. And for the last 15 years, I've been meditating for an hour and a half to two hours every single day. Yeah. And, and I haven't thankfully missed a day or when I have, I've tried to catch up. And I see that time as being my centering and grounding time to be able to do what I do in the world. And I, I take deep shelter in it because it's not an achievement for me. It's more like if I don't do it, then I can't do what mm. I do. So it's less of an achievement and more of a shelter, more of a, more of a, more of a space of surrender and more of a home as opposed to like, Oh, look, I did my two hours. It's, it's, it's not that mm. at all. And the thing about that practice is that it's split up into introductions of breathwork and visualization. And then a big part of it is mantra meditation. Mm. Uh, I've been a huge fan of practicing mantra meditation in my own life and sharing it because I found that in our noisy minds, affirmations or mantras have become powerful ways of really silencing the noise in our minds and allowing us to connect to spiritual vibration and frequency. And, and I'm a big believer in the idea of vibration and frequency, because I think we all know that there are songs that through nostalgia take us mm. straight back to the past, or there are songs that make us feel more violent or aggravated, or there are songs that make us cry. Music and sound has power. We all know that. Yes. And mantra has some really incredible power when it's chanted. So for me, that's a big part of my meditation. What sort of mantras do you say? Absolutely. So I, I share some in the book, mm. in the chant section that I uh, absolutely love. Uh, one of my favorite ones is called Sarva Sukino Bhavantu, which means may there be peace and love and joy for all humanity. Uh, that's probably one of my more outward meditations, because what it makes me realize is that if I'm wishing that for humanity, then I first have to have that inside of me. And so it's a beautiful mantra to help you realize, to approach every interaction with love and happiness and, and connection and meaning. And one of the other ones that I love and I share a lot is Om. I think Om is just mm. such an incredibly powerful symbol and find it to be so, so amazing for so many people I share it with. And that's been probably one of my favorite mantras for a long time. You touched on visualization before, which is obviously something that has been very powerful in your life. Can you talk us through how you do that within your meditation? Yeah, absolutely. So there are three types of visualization that I've worked with on myself and, and shared with other people that in my coaching circles or communities that people have found benefit from. So these three types, uh, one type of visualization 
is where you are uncomfortable with how you dealt with a situation in the past Mm. and you can no longer change it, but you want to change how you feel about it. And so it's almost like you're revisiting something that happened in the past to not change it because you can't change it, but you can change how you feel, how you behaved in it. So let's say, uh, I'll give you an example. I was working with a client a few years back who was regretful about the last thing they said to their father because their father passed away Mm. very soon in an accident after the last thing that they said to them. And they were not happy with that. And there's nothing that could help them get over that feeling that they didn't tell their father how much they loved them. So one of the visualizations that I did with that client was that they would visualize that last interaction with their parent and try their best to replace what they said to their parent. And so that required preparation in terms of writing when they weren't in the visualization, really deeply absorbing that, and then going into the visualization and sharing it and having a positive experience of realizing that their father still loved them uh, with all their hearts and that that was just a a mistake they made and allowing them to forgive Mm. themselves. So that's a specific type of meditation. That's not something you do every day, uh, but I think it's important to talk about. Uh, another, and I'll get to the one that I do every day. Uh, another one that I think is really, really powerful as a visualization is also to draw inspiration from the past or gratitude from the past. And so I like to visualize some of the best moments in my life of the past or a really unique bonding experience with a loved one or a mentor and whether you're physically with them. And right now this really applies because you may not be able to travel. You may not have gone on vacation for like six months. You may not have even been out of your home for weeks or months. And how can you revisit places that you once went to and relive those memories, not from a regretful point of like, I wish I was there, but why not allow yourself to re-experience them and experience them through gratitude? Mm. And we have that choice always to experience something out of regret or experience something out of gratitude. And, and that's just a choice. And we can rewire our mind through a visualization to just go back to that place, that person, that project that we were working on at work and to relive that again. Beautiful. So I do that a lot during this time. I've definitely, I've not been able to travel either. And me and my wife have been indoors most of this mm. time. And so for me, visualization in that way has been really powerful. And then the third one, which is probably the most used visualization by me, is probably what's closest known to manifesting, Mm. but I see it differently. Uh, So I never visualize results. I visualize processes. So for example, when I was writing my book, I wasn't visualizing the result of the book and how, what it would achieve. I was visualizing myself researching. I was visualizing myself writing. I was visualizing myself trying to piece the parts of the puzzle together. I was visualizing myself having reflections and realizations that could be in the book. And so when you visualize the process, you can do that even for your day. Mm. So when I wake up in the morning, sometimes I know that I have a day, like today I've had a day of interviews. I'll visualize myself showing up with love and service and compassion to each interview, wanting to be of service. And what that does is that it allows me to almost do a dress rehearsal in my mind. And so then when I come to the interview for real, I'm already in that state of consciousness. So it's almost like you're programming the algorithm of your mind so that when it actually comes into reality, you show up with the right emotion. The mistake we make with this visualization Mm. is we show up with an expectation That's not visualization. But if I turn up here and I'm like, I visualize this interview to be amazing. So it has to be amazing. That's, I've got it wrong. I visualized me showing up with the right intention 
And that reminds me to do that. And then I have to be okay with wherever it goes. Does that help? Yes, so those, no, that's those really... Those of visualisation and that's, that's really what interesting. I, I find I do a lot of visualisation myself, very similar to the one that you were talking about at the end. And, oh, it's completely changed my life. It's unbelievably yeah. powerful. And I think when you actually see the results of your visualisations coming to fruition, it, it, there's not a day that goes past that you don't want to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me more about yours. I'm interested to hear from you I, I, because you've had so many incredible experiences <laughs> with meditation. I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, my visualisation is slightly different to yours, but it goes on that old school manifestation where I visualise myself doing something which is of the greatest good for all. So when you're talking about the interview, I was thinking how funny that we both would have visualised ourselves in this interview today and both of us, all we wanted was to service the greatest good, to allow your communication and my communication to flow so nicely so the people at home are able to get the most that they can out of it and for their lives to flourish in a beautiful way. So, you know, it's it's not often that you are visualising something with someone and doing the exact same thing. So my visualisations are very similar. I do sometimes think of an outcome as well. But I also am very conscious of the fact that the universe will give us something that we least expect. So, yeah. you know, I'm not too set on on how I get there. I I sometimes do do the outcome. And then when when there are times where it comes to fruition, as I said, then it absolutely blows your mind. And sometimes I like to play with it as well. Yeah. You'll visualise something and I, I just want to see, wow, like, you know, I'm not, yeah. if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But let's have a go at just of just playing with it and see see what happens. So I've had a lot of fun in that space. I love that. Let's talk about our good friend, the ego, which is something that you write a lot about in your book. Obviously, someone like you has risen to fame over the last few years and within that, it's still quite a short period of time. You talk about the arrogant ego desires respect, whereas the humble worker inspires respect. How have you been able to practice humility and especially in times where you've become a known person and you obviously have a lot of fans, how have you kept your ego in check? So I think it's a daily commitment. I, I don't think you ever get to a point where you're, you're free of your ego. Mm. And it's almost like feeling you're free of your ego is the ego's best trick. And it's almost like the best magician and the best illusionist where the ego makes you feel, oh, you're humble now. You're fine. Like you're, you're taken care of. And the ego basically sets you up to, you know, make mistakes and all the rest of it. And so for me, I think it's about daily monitoring. And uh, I'll tell a story and come back to it because the story yeah. really helps. It's not, it's not in the book, but it's beautiful and it really inspires me. There's a story of Benjamin Franklin and it's told that he had a diary and he would have... 13 precepts or 13 principles that he would aspire for. Mm. And I think it included things like tranquility, integrity, simplicity. These were certain things. And he said he often failed at it. He said, I ate too much. I drank too much. I spent too much money. And he would, he would joke about that. But when he was dying on his deathbed, supposedly he was asked out of the 13, which did he not accomplish? And he said it was the 13th one. And they said, well, what's the 13th one? And he said, it's humility. Mm. And, and I love that story because it really makes you aware that you should never, ever feel that you have conquered humility 
or that you have become humble because that in and of itself is the mm. ego's greatest trick. So for me, it's a daily check to ask myself, am I treating people differently? Mm. This is a great test of the ego because ego means you feel you are superior to others and therefore you can treat them differently. Yes. And this can turn up in the smallest of ways to, by the way, to whether you have zero followers or a million or 10 million or 150 million, like this is not necessarily based on even your external indicators or numbers or whatever that stuff is. Uh, it's so much based on just a mindset. Like you can be egotistic in your town or in your home, or you can try and be egotistic in the world. Uh, but it can come up as short as, and I talk about this in the book, like it can be come, come in as like you walk into an Uber or a Lyft or a, or a car service and you don't ask the person their name. Uh, or you don't say hello, mm. or you don't say hello to the person in the store. And you just say, oh, do you know where this is? What islet's in? Without even saying, hey, how's it going? Are you okay? Can I ask you a question? Like just humanity on that level. So the first question I ask myself is, am I treating people differently? And the answer has to be no. The answer should be I'm treating people the same with the most love and compassion that I can. The second question I ask myself is, do I want people to treat me differently? So am I expecting a different level of treatment in a restaurant when I'm walking down the street, when I'm doing it? Am I expecting someone to treat me with more respect? Mm. Am I expecting someone to treat me with a certain level of uh, adoration or whatever it may be? And again, the answer should be no. The answer should be no. I should expect everyone to just treat me like a normal human because that's, that's what we are at our truest selves. Uh, and there's a great story of uh, Robert Downey Jr. when he was interviewed at Cambridge University and he jokes about, he's like, you know, when I come home, he goes, my wife and kids aren't like, oh my God, it's Iron Man. He was like, they're like, yeah, have you taken the cat out? Like the cat litter out? Have you taken the trash out? And I'm like, that's what it should mean. Like, you know, if you want your family to treat you differently or you treat your friends differently, those are two signs of ego. And again, that comes from any ego, not just followers or whatever that may be. Um, so those are two really important questions to ask yourself. And the other ways that I've really found that are useful hum for humility, one is expanding my goalposts every day and every time. So every time you reach a certain level, you've got to just see your goalposts get wider because you'll get egotistic if your goalposts get smaller or if your goalposts stay the same. So when I started out, I never thought in a million years that anyone would watch my videos or as many people as do would watch. Like mm. I never had any idea. And so I'm just grateful and humbled every day because I never expected it. And I, and I never thought it was possible. But then at the same time, if I still live with that and I don't expand my next goal or my next ambition, then it's very easy to get comfortable in that. So that's another question I ask myself. The second question or the second thing I really find is that I'm constantly around people that are spiritually, financially, intellectually and emotionally and physically more advanced than me. Yes. And, and so when you're around people like that, you constantly feel like the humble student and you just want to take notes. It's not even like an inferiority complex. It's, it's a deep understanding of like, wow, I can learn so much right mm. now rather than trying to pretend like I have all the answers. And so that helps. And, and then the third and final one for me is every year I go back and spend about two to three weeks with the monks uh, where I used to live in India. And I go back every year. Um, I hope I get to go back next year. I was there this January. I was yes. there 
in 2018 as well. And my wife comes with me and I meditate again with the monks and I spend time with them. And that's just the most grounding thing. And going somewhere where no one cares what you do, it doesn't change how they treat you. It doesn't, if anything, they remind me of how long I have to go. And I think all those things are just beautiful. So to me, it's like, I've just set up this questioning and habits that daily remind me. And by the way, this is the biggest one that I think only someone who's diligently chasing their dreams will realize this. If you're really chasing your dreams, you will fail so much that you just get humbled anyway. Mm. Like, you know, like I, when I wanted to launch my podcast, the podcast producer that was meant to produce my podcast pulled out two weeks before we launched and told me they did that because they didn't think it would be a good, a big podcast. And so I had to scramble for two weeks. This was 2019 last year, February 1st. I had to scramble to launch my podcast. And that was so humbling for me because I thought we were set up to launch this cool podcast and all this stuff. And so like I deal with, I, I get rejected more than I hear yes. Uh, and, and I think that's the part, and, and I can vouch for that for all my friends or my peers in this space that we all hear no more than we hear yes. And, and that in itself is humbling every single day. How do you not get affected by that? Uh, I used to. Uh, in the beginning, I was very scared. So when I first started out, it's become not easier, but I'd say I'd become more prepared as time mm. goes on. So, you know, one thing that you were saying, obviously, I've been doing this for four years online. Yes. But I've been doing it for 10 years offline. And so I've been studying and teaching and communicating and giving presentations for 10 years offline when I had zero followers and zero um, investment or zero anything. Like there was no, there was no service or work. And when I first tried this and I remember sitting down and one of my friends was like, you should really try and get into media because you want to spread a message and media is the best way to spread a message. And I was like, who's going to give me a job in media? I don't know anyone in media. And so I remember going to 10 media companies in London and pitching my idea for the video series. Mm. I had a made a video and I pitched it and they were like, Jay, you're just, they were like, Jay, you realize you have no qualification in video production. Like this is not going to go anywhere. So I was like, okay, let's go to media executives. So I networked with three media executives in London and I approached them and they were like, you're too old. Uh, you know, there's too many people. It's too saturated. There's no point. It's a waste of time. And then finally I ended up at a TV training day run by the BBC for ethnic minorities. And there were, and there were like six of us in the room, everyone was brown and black. And, and I walk in and I'm like, okay, cool. Like six brown and black people have been asked to come here to do this TV training day. And I went there to see if I even had the skills and they came out and said, yeah, yeah, you've got the skills. And I was like, all right, great. Where's my job? And they were like, well, there's no jobs in media. And I was like, what? You asked six people to come here to tell us there's no jobs in media. And they were like, no, no, you should start a YouTube channel. And I was like, really? Like that just works for Justin Bieber. That doesn't work for anyone else. Like, and I really had that limiting belief for that negative view. I was like, that's not going to work for me. And so at that time, what helped me recover was this beautiful statement by Thomas Edison. And he said, when you feel you've exhausted all options, remember this, you haven't. And I have tested that principle so many times in my life that I am convinced that there is a way. It's not often the traditional way. It's not often the expected way. And it's not often the way you thought of it. And that's why most of us don't take that path because it looks so different to what we imagined. 
And we're like so close, but because our vision doesn't look like the path, we go, oh, no, no, this is the wrong path. Mm. It must be wrong. This is not for me. But the path never looks like what you visualize it to be. And, and that's why it's so important to walk with life. So for me, what's really helped me is just testing that principle that there's always a way. Let me find the gap. Let me work it out. And, and that my confidence is now built on that, mm. that I know that I'll find a way. And there is one because I've been shown that when I've practiced that it works. Have you had those moments where you think maybe I'm not good enough and maybe this isn't for me? Oh, for sure. Many, many times. Uh, that, that initial stint was really tough. Uh, when I, in 2017, when I moved on from my work with the Huff Post and I was doing my own thing, that year was one of the toughest years of my life because I didn't know where I fit anymore. And I didn't know if my content would work and the videos I was creating were doing okay, but they weren't, you know, getting engagement. Uh, there were so many times when I felt that I think I feel that every day, I, I, you know, there's moments where that comes back all the time because you just always like, oh, well, maybe I could have said that better or maybe I could have explained mm. that better or maybe I wish I'd changed that before I did that. There's always that. But I think what I've learned is that my intention to serve beats that doubt. And so I'd rather live a life of service and get it wrong or make mistakes mm. than live a life of holding back and thinking I'm trying to get it perfect. And so for me, I'd rather accept my flaws and imperfections and mistakes and keep trying to help in the way that I know uh, rather than limit myself. And um, probably my favorite story that, that explains that is this uh, beautiful Zen story of a boy and his teacher and the boy every day is asked by his teacher to go and get water from the river down the hill. And the boy goes down every day, he carries a bamboo stick and has two buckets on either side. And he gets down, picks up water, comes back up. And when he comes back up, he realizes one of them's empty. And he says to the teacher, he goes, oh no, one of them's empty because there's a crack in the bottom. And the teacher goes, well, oh, don't worry about it at all. Just keep going back and listen to what I say. Go down, get water and come back up. And the boy's like, what? That makes no sense. And the teacher's like, no, trust me. And so the boy does that every day. He goes down with his bamboo stick, two buckets, picks up water, comes back up the top. Always one of them's empty. One of them's full. And he's just thinking in his head, he's like, what are we doing here? Like, this is broken. We should replace it and we should sort it out. And a month later, when he's walking up, he notices that there's this beautiful bed of flowers that has grown from the side that the bucket that's mm. broken is on. And he goes up and he says to the teacher, he's like, what's this? How did this happen? And he said, well, when you told me the bucket was broken, I planted seeds. And so now every day you're watering the seeds mm. when the water's dripping from the bucket. And I love that story. It's an old parable and Zen mm. story. I love it because it just reminds me of even parts of you that you feel are broken and incomplete and not perfect. Even those can be used for service if that's your vision. Uh, and, and rather than writing it off as broken or irrelevant. It's so true. What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Whew. I guess I'm still trying to learn it. If it's, if it's the longest one, that's a really good question. I think the lesson that's hardest to learn and, and that I think we're always still learning is to not judge people. Mm. You know, to not, yes. to not make an instant judgment of someone. It's so easy to see a news article and judge someone. It's so easy to see someone speak for 30 seconds and judge someone. It's so easy to read a sentence in an article and judge someone or something. And I think we all do it. Uh, me included. Yeah. 
And every time it happens to me or I, and every time it happens to me, I try and remind myself of, well, that isn't, then I need to stop doing yes. it to others. Uh, and, and a good example is the other day I posted, uh, I was posting the Amazon uh, charts of how, how the book's doing in Australia and India yeah. and Canada and everywhere else. And I put the India one up and it says something like 395 rupees, which is the cost of the book in yeah. India. And there's the little rupee sign. And there's a comment and someone, someone commented and goes, $395 for a book? What's inside that book? And then I didn't reply because I didn't see it till later. My, my team flagged it to me. And so someone said, $395 for a book? That sounds extortionate. And then someone else had commented back and goes, no, 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 that's $395 rupees or whatever it is, mm. uh, 395 rupees for the book. And then the other person responded saying, oh, I think that's a good sign that I need to slow down. And it was just so interesting to see someone come to their own realization. But I think that's what it is that when we're moving fast, when we're trying to get stuff done, when we're, we, we judge people, when we miss stuff and we, we miss out on mm. true beauty and true experience. And, and so for me, I think that's a constant thing for all of us. It's not slowing down in terms of speed or pace. It's trying to operate from a place of love and compassion. Um, and so like, yeah, yeah, getting to that place. I think I'm always learning that. That's, yeah. that's hard. I think that's something you always have to work on. And I, I often say the line from A Course in Miracles in the morning, I'll say, I will judge nothing that occurs today. And it is, it's so hard. And even yeah. unconsciously you'll realise you're judging someone and, you know, you just never know about anyone else's life as they don't know for you. So going a day with non-judgment is one of the most beautiful days that you'll have. What's the best advice you've ever been given? Great question. So uh, luckily I was asked this earlier this year. That's why I know my answer. Uh, but it really came to me at the time and, I, and I'll try and share it in the same way. My One of my mentors, my one of my spiritual mentors died this year from stage four brain cancer. Mm. Uh, and he'd had it for about, I'd say around three years now. Yeah, three three years now. And I'd known him since I was like very, very young. Um, and he lived in London. And I loved seeing him when I visited back from New York, when I used to live in New York and now from LA. And then he, he passed away just before the lockdown started. And I couldn't go back because his funeral was bang at the beginning of the first week of lockdown which was really tough because I, I loved him a lot and he, he did a lot for me. He performed my engagement ceremony. He spoke at my wedding, like so many beautiful memories. And I remember telling him when I left the ashram, I remember speaking to him and saying to him, I'm really confused about what to do. I'm really stuck. I have so many ideas and I have so many passions, but I just don't know where to start and what's going to work. And I have no idea where to start. This was about probably seven years ago. And he said to me, he said, you know what? You need to try and open every door possible. And he said that the universe will keep open the doors that it wants you to walk through and it will close the doors that it doesn't want you to walk through. And all you have to do is keep walking through the doors that are left open. And uh, I, I, I try and practice that every single day. It's it's become a big part of my life. And I think it was the best piece of advice ever because I think you can sit there and try and analyze the best option and the best tactic and the tool for like years. Whereas if you just do everything, mm. then you figure it out. And, and the best lesson I've learned from him apart from that, and this was a lesson he never shared with me. It's a lesson that I feel he left me when he passed away. Uh, you know, I, I don't, 
I always told him how much I loved him, even when he wasn't unwell. And so I don't have any regrets of me not sharing how much I loved him and respected him. But I was thinking about what it meant to lose someone and what really helps. And I found that for me, what gave me a sense of connection to him is trying to aspire to be everything that he was and valued. And that way I feel he's still living with me. So just to express to people how special he was, even though he had stage four brain cancer and he'd lost his short-term memory. So if I went to see him, he'd be like, Jay, how's it going? Mm. And then literally 20 seconds later, he'd be like, Jay, how's it going? Because he'd think yeah. it was the first time he's seeing me again. But his his number one thing that all he'd do, despite losing his short-term memory and like having that lapse that quickly, he'd thank everyone all day. He'd be like, thank you for what service you're doing in the world. Thank you for what you're doing for God. Thank you for what you're doing for the universe. He would just thank people. Like that was his broken record. And I'm like, what a broken record to have. Like if, you're, if your brain's not working and all you think of is gratitude, you must have lived in such a special place. And he never, he never displayed any form of anything else apart from gratitude for the three or four years that he had stage four brain cancer. Isn't that amazing? What is your favorite prayer? Oh, um, that's such a beautiful question. My, my, my favorite prayer is um, please allow me to serve with everything that I have. Please allow me to hold nothing back. Uh, please guide me in the right direction to make the right decisions. And please always remind me that I'm simply here to serve. What is a life of greatness to you? Everyone that I know that has truly done something great does not think they're great. And I think that's the greatest thing that someone can do is that they achieve the most amazing things in the world, but they do it effortlessly in the sense that they don't, they don't really care whether they get the credit or the respect or the admiration or the, the acknowledgement for it. They do it because the acknowledgement is in the service. The gift is in the service, uh, not in the feeling or the validation from anywhere outside. Jay Shetty, thank you for walking through all those doors and listening to your mentor because you've been able to shine a light on so many people and we are so very grateful for that. Thank you. This was such a beautiful interview. I, I really felt like I felt very, very present with you and I also felt uh, we, we really went somewhere. It was really, it was really special. So thank you so much for bringing that energy to this podcast and letting me share my work with all of your incredible community. I, I really appreciate it. And I hope we get to do this in person one day when I get to visit. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.